Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. This week, we've got David Wilkinson. He is a British Methodist minister and a theologian, but he's also an astrophysicist. He is a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society in the UK, uh, and he's currently a theologian, a theology professor in the Department of Theology and Religion at Durham University, also in the UK. He's awesome. You might remember him from episode two, all the way back last year of this uh, show, talking about planets and the search for extraterrestrial life. That is not what we're talking about this week. This week we're talking about uh, the fine-tuning of this universe, basically the insane unlikelihood that a universe like this that could support life would appear, given uh, all the apparently fungible um, physical constants. Uh, Anyway, David will explain it better than I could. Um, And then a common response to that, by non-theistic interpreters is the multiverse. So maybe there are infinite universes, in which case, of course, this one would exist. We don't need God to explain that. Uh, And we talk about whether or not that really works. Does that really solve the problem? Does it get at, uh, I don't know, or does it kick the can down the road, basically? Uh, Open for interpretation, but really worth thinking about. Uh, This is one of the reasons that I'm a theist, basically, is thinking around the fine-tuning of the universe. And I'm not convinced that the multiverse actually sort of solves the problem for the non-theist. But I could be wrong, of course. Either way, I think you'll enjoy this conversation with David. Um, Here we go. 
David, thank you so much for joining me today. We are here to talk about what's called the anthropic principle, or what is sometimes called the fine-tuning of the universe, which is both a fact and then it has turned into a kind of an argument or various kinds of arguments. And then we're going to talk about the most common non-theist reaction to that argument, which is the multiverse theory. And we're going to consider if that theory works and to what extent it works and what we need to assume and all of that. And I'm really happy to have this conversation with you because you are an astrophysicist by trade, but also a minister, yes, right? indeed. So we're going to get to ask at the end a little bit of how all of the science stuff interacts with your own faith. Of course. Let's start with the anthropic principle itself. As I understand it, and really, I'm, I'm out of my home turf here, <laughs> so, you know, bear with me, but it's the idea that there are all these constants, uh, and they could be different, but they're not different, and it's very unlikely that they would be exactly what they are, such that, like, planets could form and those planets could have life on them. Planets is a good place to start because the last time we spoke, we yes. spoke a year ago, but it aired back in January, yes. we talked about exoplanets and aliens yes, and all yes. that stuff, so... Maybe let's start with that. What does the anthropic principle have to do with planets? Well, you're absolutely right. And in a sense, we start with planets. Now, my best uh, term for the anthropic principle comes from Paul Davis, who calls this the Goldilocks enigma. Goldilocks enigma. The things are just right, but they're puzzling. And so if we start with the Earth, we know, for example, that if the Earth was slightly closer to the sun or slightly further away, it would either be too hot or too cold for life to be sustained over a long period of time. Now, that's a just rightness, a Goldilocks type of effect in terms of the circumstance of the universe, in that the yeah. Earth is just in the right orbit. But, of course, there are many planets, billions of planets in, in the universe, so... Well, we're on Earth, but we might just think that Earth is... Spe- I'm playing devil's advocate here. You're right. We and might just think Earth is special, but we happen to be on Earth. Uh, but there's something like Earth, but it's going to get much harder to explain than that, right? That's right. But there's a number of things which illustrate very nicely the complexity of this. So if, say, 50% of uh, stars have planets with them, and there's 100 billion stars and 100 billion galaxies, you can say... Well, things will be just right. Now, remember, we've just illustrated one thing, one circumstance, which is about the orbit. There's a Distance whole number of them. to the sun, right, yeah. A whole number of things. For instance, the star itself needs to be the right kind of star. The sun is a star which has a long lifetime. That needs to be right. The atmosphere needs to be just right in terms of mixture of oxygen, nitrogen, things of that sort. The cloud cover needs to be just right. We know that about global warming. The amount of water on the Earth needs to be just right. The ability for us to be in a solar system where there's not a supernova explosion or another star which is going to become a black hole and will either fry us or swallow us up. That needs to be just right. Now, you begin to build a whole number of anthropic principles or Goldilocks enigmas onto this. Uh, Now, that's all about circumstance. Now, there's another sense of the anthropic principle, which are things that need to be just right in terms of law. And let me illustrate illustrate this in terms of what makes this planet. So we and the planet are made out of carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, um, not just hydrogen and helium, which is the way the universe started. 
In the 1960s, Sir Fred Hoyle, great physicist, with uh, a number of other people like Fowler and others, looked at the processes within stars by which you produce carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen. And what they found was that, uh, that oxygen is produced in, uh, as carbon is, in the death throes of a star in a supernova explosion. But they also found something really quite odd. And that was if the laws of physics were just slightly different and the energy levels in carbon were only 2% different from what they are and the energy levels in oxygen were only half a percent different from what they are, there would be no carbon in the universe. And that's quite serious for you At and me. At all. Yeah, no that's carbon. Right, because we're made of it. And Hoyle wrote after that, nothing has shaken my atheism as much as this discovery this fine-tuning in the laws of physics. So you've got fine-tuning in the laws of physics, and you've got fine-tuning in the circumstances which make possible life. This is a very complicated thing. It is complicated. I like that we started with planets because mm. it, it's kind of a more tangible way of understanding That's it. Right. So we might think, well, sure, Earth happens to be in the Goldilocks zone. It happens to be the perfect kind of planet for life. But we evolved here and we arose and have consciousness, it would stand a reason to say only people who arise on Goldilocks planets will then think, wow, how crazy that we ended up in one. But that's not necessarily surprising. There's just nobody emerging on other planets to have the opposite thought. That's right. right? But that's just this planet. What we're really talking about here is the universe itself. So... Earth is the stand-in for our universe. And what we're asking now is, well, if the entire universe is a Goldilocks planet, so to speak, or in a Goldilocks zone, then it's not so clear. Of course, we're going to bring in multiverse theory, but it's not so clear that there are other universes where no one's waking up and only I, this one where we're waking up. Exactly right. And again, your question illustrates very helpfully what the anthropic principle actually is. Now, we talk about anthropic balances, we talk loosely about anthropic principles, but the anthropic principle devised, first of all, by people like Brandon Carter, was an explanation of what you've just eloquently put, which is a selection effect. That is, that you notice the balances because you're here. And in the weak form of the anthropic principle, as it became known, this was simply a recognition that you notice it because you're here. And therefore, you need to be cautious about building too much on that. Where we then went to as people developed this thinking was to move from the selection effect of the weak anthropic principle to a stronger version of the anthropic principle, which would be to not just notice the circumstances that we were here, but to explain the circumstances of uh, Goldilocks planets and the universe itself. And that became known as the strong anthropic principle. And it's there that the selection effect became coupled with the belief of other universes. Okay. So let's not get ahead of ourselves, though. First, I want to really understand just how unlikely it is. So I understand that it's unlikely to have a planet like Earth. But then again, as you said, there are billions of galaxies and right. billions and billions of planets. So you're going to probably have some given the odds. What's different is the laws that govern the entire universe, 
as far as we know, there's just one universe. We don't have billions and billions of universe. As far as we know, we don't have access to them. We certainly can't see them or measure them. So we just got this one and it just happens to be Earth as compared to the billions of other yes, planets that yes, wouldn't have life. Yes. So we got so lucky or whatever to have this particular universe. But I want to understand the math here. Sure. Just how unlikely was it if you just did random probabilities for all the physical constants? What are the chances that we get the universe that we have or a universe that is close enough to ours that it could produce carbon and could have stars and planets that could sustain life? Well, let me try and give you an illustration of this, which is a first-order illustration, and therefore we need to be careful about this is a simplistic version of it. But if you imagine the expansion of the universe, imagine you had a machine, and on it you had two dials. One would control the expansion rate of the universe. Just how fast is it expanding? That's right. The second would control the gravitational force, the thing that pulls everything together. Imagine that you set these dials to whatever you want and press a start button and see what kind of universe you get. Now, after a few billion goes, this is a very boring experiment because it matters what those two dials are set to. If you set the expansion rate of the universe just slightly too high, the universe expands so quickly that gravity isn't able to make stars, galaxies, planets. Stuff won't stick together, basically. Won't stick together. The universe has no structure to it at all. If you get the gravitational force just a touch too high, the universe appears, but gravity is so strong that it immediately collapses back into itself in the opposite of a big bang, a big crunch. You don't see a universe at all. So now, it, you mean that would happen like in an instant? In basically. an instant. That's right. Okay, how much stronger would the gravitational constant need to be in a percentage form for well, the entire universe to simply crunch back up? Let me put it like this. Those two dials, the balance between the expansion rate and the gravitational force, would need to be balanced to within one part in 10 to the power 60. That's 10 followed by 59 zeros. Let's, let's change the illustration. Imagine you were given a bow and arrow... Uh, blindfolded, turned around, and asked to hit a target one centimeter squared on the other side of the observable universe, that's about one part in 10 to the power 60. Oh now, that's gosh. a, that's a, as I say, that's a first order. It's, it doesn't take into account dark energy and dark matter and things of that sort, which would all qualify this, but nothing in terms of the concept of the illustration. That's the extraordinary nature of what we're talking about. Okay. And in that sense, it's a non-trivial fact about the universe. Martin Rees often says, it's not the fact that things are balanced, it's the fact that they're balanced so extraordinarily, <laughs> precisely in that sense. These are big numbers or small fractions right, that we're right. talking about. And so this is why some people will call this the fine-tuning of that's the universe. Right. And then they'll develop things like the fine-tuning argument for the universe. Well, that's right. And, uh, I mean, two qualifications. The first is, one might preface that by saying the ultra, ultra, ultra fine-tuning right, argument right. of the universe. And there's a sense in which some thinkers see the possibility of a resurrection of the design argument in this. Right. So, actually, really quick, before we get to the design argument... That gravitational two-knob thing, 
That's just one of... That's just one of many. Just just throw out a couple others. You don't have to do the numbers, but just sure. so that we get the gravity, pun intended, of it. Yes. So, I mean, Martin Rees, in a very beautiful book called uh, Just Six Numbers, picks out just six of them. One is very obvious. One is the fact that we have three uh, dimensions of space and one dimension of time. It's difficult to imagine a universe without that. Another is is about the thing that holds nuclei together. Uh, again, it's of the same order as of the gravitational illustration that we've talked about. If, uh, if that particular nuclear force is slightly different from what it is, then uh, things don't work. Another is uh, a value in gravitational calculations called the gravitational constant. That was just slightly different. Now, one could actually sit here and go through 20 or 30 of these quite easily essentially in terms of making a universe like ours almost infinitely improbable not quite infinite because technically you could multiply these all together but effectively infinitely improbable without some kind of mechanism and we're going to now we're going to get to that either a mind like reality or being that is capable of setting them or the multiverse. So an infinite or near infinite succession of actualized that's or right. possible universes such that eventually you get to the one that we're in. Exactly. And that those are really the only two ways that people have come up with to sort of solve this? Yes. I mean, apart from a third way, which is to say, as people like Bertrand Russell were tempted to say, and that is, let's not ask the why question. Yeah, so, so Clayton talks about that. He says, yes. you could refuse to ask the question. You can refuse that's to the ask third the question. Way, but now, that's Reece, not really answering Martin it. Martin yeah. the current British astronomer royal, responds to this by saying, this is such an extraordinary thing that actually you're drawn to the why question. And Reese quotes a parable from the philosopher John Leslie. And the parable goes like this. Imagine that you were sentenced to death by firing squad. You found yourself in front of a firing squad of people with 50 rifles. The order is given to shoot. Uh, They take aim and all 50 discharge their bullets towards you. But not one of them hits you. They all impact the wall behind you. Now in that situation, John Leslie says, you could say, well, I've been very lucky this morning. I'll get on with, with the rest of my life. But most people think that's such an extraordinary situation that you start thinking, is there a deeper story here? Yeah. Was this a mock execution, for example? Was there a big electromagnet on a truck that went behind the wall just at the wrong time? Did someone who loves me convince these guys not to hit, hit them me? off? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. You start to ask, is there a deeper story? Now, I think that's a very good way because um, what Russell and others refused to see is that these things are so extraordinary that they demand at least a discussion of the deeper story. And that's where we move on to what the mechanism might be to cause this. So you kind of tease this, and I want to talk about this idea that some people are tempted to start with this and bring back the argument from design, a theistic argument. What's the classic version of that, and then what's the way that that gets retold? Classic version uh, arose with the growth of the scientific revolution and really found its high point in William Paley's natural theology and Paley's typical and oft-quoted example of, I'm walking across a heath, uh, I find a watch, 
I pick it up, I look at the clockwork mechanism, and I infer from that that there must be a designer of the clockwork mechanism. Paley took that analogy and applied it to the biological world and said, when I look at the biological world, this speaks of design to me, therefore there must be a designer. Now, at that point, it became very popular Paley's natural theology was taught right through the 19th century and indeed into the 20th century at the University of Cambridge. The problems were manifold, however. Uh, The philosophers David Hume and Immanuel Kant had criticised the argument for a number of reasons. One, why pick on the nice bits of design rather than the evil in the world? Hmm. But perhaps more importantly for me as a Christian theologian, the ability that Christians then used to smuggle a Christian God, into that argument. So to say that the clockwork designer of the universe is actually a God of holiness, a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of justice, and you suddenly think to yourself, where did that come from? Yeah, you could maybe get a deism from that, and and that actually was quite popular, uh, I guess, before that book's publication. Um, The idea that, hey, this is all really well designed. There must have been someone to design it, but the world's also full of evil. doesn't look like God's really personal or anything. So we'll just posit a God who set everything in motion and stepped back. That's right. Because, you know, to paraphrase some of the earlier arguments, really all you can infer from the design argument at best, and there are problems with the logic, but at best would be that uh, there's some kind of designer who has an inordinate interest in cockroaches, who actually doesn't... Bacteria. That's right. He doesn't take care of the world and has one or two projects which are quite interesting. But that's all you can say. Now, what was interesting in the 19th century was that, and this was the impact of Darwinism, many people think that Darwin... The problem for the Christian churches was an attack upon Genesis or an attack upon uh, human uniqueness. No, it's an attack on natural theology. That's right, it was. And that's key to it. Because what Darwin did, and this is important for our understanding of multiverse, what Darwin did was to say, here is an alternative explanation for what you think is only a logical proof of God. Right. So natural selection became the alternative explanation for the apparent design in the natural world. Once you have an alternative explanation, then trying to prove God through design suddenly falls. So here's the challenge for us then. We want to take the anthropic principle very seriously, and we want to take the multiverse objection seriously. What we don't want to do is smuggle back in the natural theology argument under the guise of the anthropic principle, right? Exactly. And, and that's um, what some people are doing, is, am I right? That's the temptation. I think it becomes formalized to an extent in the movement of intelligent design. But I think for many Christian apologists, it's become a way of trying to resurrect the design argument in an unhelpful way. And the, the problem is that, first of all, it doesn't work because multiverse provides an alternative explanation. It may not be a correct explanation, but it's an alternative explanation. And the second thing, which is what, of course, we learned from the design argument and Darwinism in the 19th century, is that the attempt to prove God completely subverts that Christian faith is about God's revelation to us. And our knowledge of God doesn't come through logical argument, but comes through revelation, which is why 
people like B.B. Warfield and others in the Princeton School of Theology, were the most unperturbed by Darwin uh, and evolution because their knowledge of God was strongly built on this concept that God revealed rather than the design argument. So the the difficulty for Christian apologists is uh, the smuggling back in of the design argument is a rightly said Dan, and again the dropping of of the central core of Christian theology being that God is a self-revealing God rather than a God who can be proved by logical theorem. I do think, though, so this is interesting. I didn't anticipate going here. Hmm. I think that I find, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I find the anthropic principle to be one reason to posit some God. Yes. Um, you're not, you're not criticizing that? No, I'm not. I'm, okay. I'm going to follow John Polkinghorne here. And Polkinghorne made a very helpful distinction for me. And that is that Polkinghorne said that the anthropic principle or the Goldilocks enigma may be a pointer towards God rather than a proof. So yeah, it becomes sure. part of um, evidence that needs to be seen in the round, taken together. Yes. Rather than its own isolated argument for the existence of God. Or to put sure. it another way, Paul Davis and Fred Hoyle, and these are significant people because they're not exercising any religious um, prejudice or being part of faith communities. Uh, Paul Davis talks about how the Goldilocks enigma leads us to consider whether the universe has a deeper story to it. Yeah, and, and so it raises questions for me rather than gives me proof. I think that's good. And listeners will remember a recent interview with John Hott yes. about how Hot thinks we should be looking to the future, not the past or the eternal present, for the ultimate meaning of the yes, story of our yes, universe. Yes. But this would be the beginning of that story. If we're going to think of it in story terms, the beginning is God or whatever ultimate reality sets these things such that we could come to have consciousness. And I think would, that's a helpful way yeah. of, of looking at it. And remember that the great novel in its early chapters will always pose questions. Hmm. It will set up questions where you're going to say, I need to read on to understand what's going on here. There's, there's little glimpses here, little yeah. clues, little pointers. Yeah. So before we move to the multiverse response, I do want to spend a little more time on this idea that like, look, even if you buy that ultimate reality, God, what, whatever you want to call it, is mind-like, and therefore that is what is at least mind-like, and that is what explains the fact that our universe is so perfectly designed or... Carefully, I mean, balanced is balanced. not a bad word. Yeah, sure. Honest. Balanced yeah. such that we could emerge and be able to think about this stuff. That's still not Christianity. Like, that doesn't give you that it's Jehovah and Moses and Jesus of Nazareth. You know, it's – we have a temptation, I think, to use this as confirmation bias for other stuff we already believe. Agreed. That it doesn't necessarily contradict. That's right. But to be careful with how far we take it in an apologetics angle. Very much so. And I think, again, you've hit the nail on the head on this. That uh, the anthropic principle and the Goldilocks enigma – can be understood well within the already Christian framework yeah. of believing that God has revealed himself. It is consistent with 
supportive of, and understandable within that framework. Where the problem comes, and indeed this is a this is a critique of the whole movement of intelligent design, is when you rip these arguments out of that bigger context of what Christian faith is about, but then try and smuggle the Christian bit in from your back pocket while no one's looking. Um, that doesn't work. And the 19th century showed us that that doesn't work. And we need to relearn the argument again. Yeah, I mean, the this idea that the universe is fine-tuned by some mind-like ultimate reality, as I understand it, is also consistent with Islam. It's consistent with most Eastern traditions. Sure. That, you know, Taoism, there's a well-ordered way that we Absolutely. should align our lives with in the particular. I mean, so, That's so right. we have and to be really careful. We've yeah. got to be very careful. And without wanting to um, to push this too far, it's also consistent with the universe being created by a pink elephant, if the pink elephant is able to do the laws of physics. Now, right. I mean, that's you, know, you can't argue against that, in the sense that um, you, you've then got to say, well, where does your knowledge of the pink elephant come from? And Dawkins and others rightly uh, criticise those who've tried to use the design argument to say, where does, where does the knowledge come from? Now, Christianity actually does have an answer to that. Yeah, and that is in terms of revelation, but yes, that's the very difficult area of trying to resurrect some of these proofs or push them forward in intelligent design. You know what I'm going to say here? I'm going to pitch the Patreon campaign, but I'm going to say a little something different uh, this week. Today, uh, I'm recording this uh, the day before this episode comes out. So yesterday, for you, if you're listening on Monday, we had a Zoom hang for members of the Patreon group, and it was awesome. And I recorded the audio, and basically it was a bunch of follow-up questions to last week's episode of Why I'm Still a Christian, and and related stuff that had come up for people and that we sort of kicked around. Uh, It was great. A lot of interesting issues and questions came up. I hope that there were some interesting answers. I was able to appeal to a couple members in the group who had a little more expertise than me there and again. And uh, I made that audio available on the Patreon feed for for patrons. And so that's kind of a cool thing that we're doing now during the pandemic. I'm not sure how much it will continue, but we've done two of them now. And I, I've really enjoyed them both. So I imagine we will keep doing them to some degree. And that's another benefit. So, of course, you get the, the two at least exclusive episodes per month. And you get the Facebook group, which is for patrons only, but also you get these Zoom hangs, or at least the audio from the Zoom hangs. That's kind of a new benefit. So it's five bucks a month. There is a sliding scale, especially if you're financially affected by the pandemic or the in- ensuing economic problems. Please email me if that's the case. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Uh, no shame there whatsoever. We're all being impacted by this in different ways. I will be impacted with my, uh, my day job, but just not yet. So we'll see how that goes in a few months. Um, but yeah, so patreon.com slash Dan Coke, or you have permission pod.com click become a patron if you're interested. All right, back to the episode with David. So let's talk about the multiverse. This is the non-theistic rejoinder to the anthropic principle. As far as I understand it, it goes something like this. Perhaps there's not only one universe. Perhaps there are multiple, maybe even infinite universes that in in some sense bubble out from each other or emanate from some kind of source, universe source. 
And so just like we said, well, we happen to be on Earth, but that's just because Earth is the only place where we could become conscious because of the Goldilocks zone. Same thing with universes. If there are as many universes as there are planets in our universe, for instance, then it's the same thing mathematically. Now, the difference here, of course, is that we know there are billions of other Great. planets. We don't know that there are billions of other universes. So how does the multiverse person argue for that point? Of course. So let's just take this bit by bit. The first thing to say is that there are theories of other universes. One you've mentioned, and that is that our universe was formed out of a sea of bubbles, quantum fluctuations. And that's a particular interpretation of the creation of our own universe. The second uh, is largely ruled out now, but was around, which is that the universe expands and then contracts and then bounces, and you've got an infinite number of oscillating universes. Since 1998 and the discovery of dark energy, most physicists believe that that's ruled out. Because so the, universe the universe will expand gonna, forever. Yeah, it just goes forever until it's cold. The third yeah. option is, is the more bizarre option, and that is the interpretation of quantum theory by Hugh Everett. And Everett said that whenever a quantum event occurs, the universe bifurcates, it splits, splits yeah. into parallel universes. Now, um, that's a very bizarre theory, much loved by science fiction writers, of course. But if we stay with the bubble universe model with the first one. There's a real possibility that that may be the case. Now, two things stem from this. The first is the question, if our universe develops and expands and other universes don't, because our universe is just right, what is the status of the explanation that we're giving there? If we cannot pass information from this universe to the other, if we can't pass information how do we really know that other universes are there? Now, some thinkers will therefore say, well, in fact, what we've got here is not a physical explanation. It's a metaphysical explanation. Yeah, Clayton says, calls it a philosophical argument. That's it's not a, a scientific argument. argument. Now, there's a word of caution here, and that is uh, something that Bob Russell argued for for a number of years. And that is, if you say that in order to explain our universe, you need this particular explanation of the early universe of lots of bubbles. Does that actually give the other bubbles a scientific status? Even though we might not know they're there in terms of passing information, does the strength of the explanation for what we observe predict the real existence of other universes. Now, that just complicates the Clayton argument that it's a philosophical explanation slightly. And I have to say, Dan, I'm not entirely uh, clear in my own thinking about what the status is of that. Yeah, so, there, so one thing that Clayton talks about um, is that there are... So by the way, I'm looking at his book, The Predicament of Belief, sure. which I interviewed uh, him about actually earlier today. But this is just his little two or three pages on multiverse and, and anthropic principle as a little guide for my own questions for you. So there are reasons to wonder, and this is kind of what we're getting at, if this is 
scientifically testable. It sure sounds like it's not because we don't have any reason to believe that information could pass between universes. Well, unless there's a particular quantum kind of effect, uh, which quantum computing might pick up on. But at the moment, we don't know. Okay, at the moment. And then there's the other question of if it is a coherent postulation is, is his phrase. Do you think that positing the multiverse is coherent? Yeah, I don't. Uh, let's say I don't see it as unco- incoherent. Yeah. Okay. Um, now um, it's interesting that uh, Don Page, uh, one of Hawkins' long-term collaborators and distinguished theoretical physicist and evangelical Christian in his own right, uh, has no problem with the multiverse. He's an advocate of the multiverse. He thinks that it does help us explain certain problems in the early universe. And as a Christian. He doesn't find it incoherent on the basis that a God who created 100 billion stars and 100 billion galaxies, I mean, let's just put a few more zeros on the end of it. Right. That's not, that's not a difficult theological problem. Right. So now we're moving. So, okay, you're, you're anticipating the next move here. Here is what's really interesting about this whole conversation. So let's say the multiverse is a coherent possibility and clayton says so by the way he agrees with you that it is coherent or that it's not incoherent yes but here's the question does it do the work philosophically that the non-theist is hoping it will do and here's how clayton phrases it and this makes sense to me so clayton says all right what we started was we've got this goldilocks universe it's just right it's it's wildly improbable it is so improbable that it must have taken some sort of mind like entity or ultimate reality or ground of being or whatever to set it that way. Otherwise, it's just too improbable to have happened by chance. Then the rejoinder is, well, it seems like that, but actually there could be an infinite number or near infinite number of these universes such that eventually you'll get one. To which Phil replies, okay, so then what is it that makes it such that there are all of these universes? With, you know, a random slot machine assortment of whatever, like, if you're going to talk about that, now we're talking about laws that govern the type of the number in all the constants throughout all these multiple universes. Have we not just kicked the can back a step and said, well, then whatever that is needs to be mind like, because even to say, well, maybe that mind doesn't have the capacity or power to set them, but it does have the capacity and power to get a random universe generator going, right? That's entirely right, and uh, I'm fully supportive of that. And I think this is an important distinction. So that the question, crucially, is not about the circumstances, it's about the laws. Yeah. And where do the laws of physics come from? Now, actually... At this point, we make a helpful move away from what could classically be a God of the gaps move to say that science assumes that the laws of physics are there. It doesn't explain them. Yeah. And the question about the laws of physics is why are they so simple, elegant, and fruitful? And that is, and Clayton's right, that is a philosophical, metaphysical question that needs to be asked and needs an answer. And so it's the same thing that I've argued over a number of years in regard to Hawkins' model of the early universe. If Hawkins says, I don't want a God of the gaps setting the universe off, I I want a quantum fluctuation, which leads to inflation and Big Bang theory, 
I think the Christian or indeed the philosopher can say, great, but where does quantum theory itself come from? Again, that's a philosophical, metaphysical question. And so I don't think that multiverse does what the person who wants to rule out the existence of God, um, it doesn't work in that way indeed. In a beautiful irony, it kicks the can back to say, where do these laws of physics come from? Now, again, you can still be Bertrand Russell and you can say, I don't want to ask the question. Yeah. But the fact that these laws are so simple, so elegant, so fruitful, they're worth engaging with. And I have to say, Dan, in terms of the physicists that I used to work with and the people that I talk to today who wouldn't be classed as religious, they are struck time and time again by this question of the nature of the laws of physics and where they come from. I don't think, again, this is a proof for the existence of God, but I think the laws of physics are a pointer, and they indicate a deeper story to what's going on in the universe. Yeah, I like the idea of, of using it as a very long story. I think that's just, that's so interesting. I, I'm still making sure I have my head wrapped around this sufficiently. The idea that, okay, there's some volition, intentionality, something like that, if it's just the one universe, to get it all balanced just right. And if it's multiples, well, then it's at least enough volition. Or You know, it's like, where does it come from? Where does this infinite universe generator come from? And wouldn't that just be God or ultimate reality or whatever? And in, as you said, there are Christian theologians who have no problem with that. Maybe that God's even bigger, you know, or whatever. Like, you know, so part, part of what we've got from Aquinas right through, uh, and certainly in the biblical account themselves, is this sense that the creator God is a God of extravagance. Now, often within Western theology, what we've done is we've reduced God to either a, you know, a, an engineer or a mathematician, which is what the design argument does. But in fact, uh, within the biblical account, and particularly you find it in Aquinas' theology, is God as the artist. God is the one who simply is full of artistic expression and wants to create with extravagance. God makes an exciting God in that sense. And the second problem we've, we've often had is to reduce God purely to creating human beings, full stop. You see, one of the questions is, why create bubble universes which have no intelligent life within them? Can Christian theology cope with that? Can Christian theology cope with planets which will never be life-giving and may never be seen by human beings? Christian theology absolutely copes with that because it's about a God who loves creating not just for the benefit of human beings, not just to bring about life, but that God just likes creating. And there's something where within the extravagance of the universe, human life becomes even more special because it's part of this huge, huge and beautiful tapestry uh, of what's going on. And so in that sense, I think um, this is something that as a Christian theologian, I'm very much open to. Well, my last question for you is just, just dovetails with that, which is just in your own personal faith life, you know, having these kind of dual roles and dual modality, how does thinking about the Goldilocks enigma and the possibility of the multiverse as a theistic explanation, yes. um, how does that affect your day-to-day your -day faith? 
number of levels. So I think within my own uh, discipleship and theology, um, this is about a recognition of, uh, as Kepler said, science is thinking God's thoughts after him. So there's something about the beauty of what God has created here, uh, whether it be in multiverse or in just this universe, which for me, science is about a gift that God has given for God's glory. The second thing is in terms of how I share my faith, and that is that I do want to talk with those who are interested about the world, about a number of pointers that may point towards the fact that there's a deeper story to the universe, but I need to be careful. I need to uh, not isolate Jesus from that conversation, because in doing so, I isolate revelation, and I go back to the design argument. I need to be cautious not to think that this is a logical proof and therefore that I can railroad people into belief. But I do want to say from my own work as a scientist, these are the things that strike me about the universe. Now, Dan, if I may tell you a little story, because I've had an interest in a, in a fascinating character. He was the first professor of astronomy at my own university, Durham. He was appointed in 1842. Um, he was not only professor of astronomy, he was also professor of mathematics and professor of Hebrew, all at the same time. Extraordinary character, Temple Chevalier. And, of course, he was a contemporary of a certain Charles Darwin. They both read uh, Paley's Natural Theology at Cambridge University. They both, interestingly, lost children at an early age. Mm. They shared that same thing. And Chevalier wrote a book... Um, in terms of, uh, it was entitled Proofs of the Divine Power. And there were two things which were really interesting about this. First was that he used a lot of astronomy uh, from the universe, that was his business, including something marvellous about the planets. But they weren't really proofs. The title is a misnomer. They were core look-at-that instances. <laughs> it was, wow, just have a look at this. That was the first thing. The second thing was that the first five chapters of the book were all about these. The next five chapters of the book were about biblical revelation, about how he knew God through God's revelation in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And what's very interesting is here is someone in the 19th century, contemporary of Darwin, who's using science not as a proof, but as a wow look at this. And now if you're going to interpret the wow look at this, he says... Let me give you the framework for how God reveals himself in which you can fully understand what's going on. Now, that's a very different history to the kind of history that we often tell about the design argument of lots of Christians trying to prove the existence of God. But I actually find it's a very good model for me. There's a sense in which I sit down with fellow physicists and say, wow, look at that. What about the laws of physics? Isn't that wonderful? But actually, I'm not going to prove God through that. We're going to have a conversation. And if you're ready and if you're open to it, let me tell you about Jesus. And furthermore, what people are rejecting when they say I'm an atheist is as varied as the number of atheists, right? And oftentimes, they're not rejecting the most sophisticated theistic arguments on the weight of the evidence at a 60-40 probability curve or something, you know, they are rejecting actual actions and character of religious people that they've encountered in their uh -huh. lives, publicly or privately. And they're like, that's not true. 
And also these arguments that I've heard are not that good. And they might be right about that, especially it depends on which arguments they've heard or what picture of God they've been what presented with. What picture of God. So the great right. Anglican evangelist, David Watson, when a British uh, Anglican, when people would come up to him and say, I don't believe in God, Watson would simply say, tell me what kind of God you do you not believe in? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. by the end of the conversation, he would say, well, to be honest, I don't believe in that kind of God either. Yep. Let's let's talk about um, a different kind of God. So I think I think that's right. And a lot of these questions, whether it be about discipleship, whether it be about prayer, whether it be how Christians communicate God, are always about what kind of God. It's not about whether God exists or not. It's actually how can you speak about the nature of God? And that was where the design argument had its problem. It tried to prove just the existence of God, but actually, what kind of God? That's the key question. So I want to just, I want to close with telling you how this stuff fits in for me and Please. get your, two, get your yes. take on it. If you think I'm doing any kind of God of the gaps, let me know. Mm-hmm. Here's how I take in the anthropic principle and the multiverse stuff. I just think, okay, so it seems to me like there is good reason on the balance of the evidence, you know, more than 50%, not 100%, to say, yeah, there's some kind of mind, mind-like whatever, that either got this universe just right or such that it can produce enough universes until one of them is like this. And then the fact that this universe produces beings that can reason back to the Big Bang the anthropic principle, you know, could even do this, could be conscious, is really meaningful. And then the next bit that I'll throw in is the universality of a sense of God in human history. Basically, until people had cultural scaffolding with which to reject it, until then, everybody believed it. And even today, amidst plenty of robust atheistic arguments and whatever, still the vast majority of people have... Even people who reject Christianity remain spiritual often. Um, Then my next bit is that I've had experience like that, and it is the most meaningful experience. That it's either it's either the most meaningful experience, or it feels directly connected to the most meaningful experiences that I've had with family, loved ones, others, you know, art, whatever. And so then I just go, yeah, it's a pretty good combination of things. I think I should live my life oriented toward what it appears to be that I'm learning about this ultimate reality. And that's basically theism. And then I can go further into the particulars of Christianity. And I have a lot of doubts about whether I can actually, I actually don't, I don't think that I can weigh the evidence of Christianity versus other options because I think I'm too programmed by the arbitrary circumstances of my own birth. And my personality and stuff course, like that. Yes. So I'm not. I'm no longer concerned with proving Christianity as as better or above other religions right. because of that. But I'm here, and I've got that as a possible framework to live into. And then all this stuff from the fine tuning, and the story of the universe, and consciousness, and other people's experience, and sort of the shared some sort of love, acceptance, broader consciousness shared among traditions, and then my personal experience. I go, yeah. And then I and then I look at. Jesus's life. And I look at some of the people that follow Jesus and what they've been turned into. And I think that's what I want to be turned into. So this is the trajectory of my life. That's where it fits in for me. I'm curious what you think about that placement. 
I'd be broadly in the same place. I think the what's key to it is, first of all, that that's a non-judgmental approach towards people of other faiths or no or faiths no faith, at all. Yeah, yeah. I think, secondly, it's simply bearing witness to that which makes sense for you, for me. I think uh, it avoids any sense of God of the gaps. Um, I think where I might be a little more explicit would be in offering my understanding of Jesus. Um, and that is, I, I've found that when I sit down with fellows who come from different faith traditions, I would like them to be as explicit as they can about their beliefs. Because I think I've, uh, the days where we used to say, well, is there a common denominator? Yeah. Let's reduce everything right. to its lowest. Doesn't build relationship and doesn't build knowledge or respect. Sure. But I think I think that's a very helpful approach, and that's where you and I would be very much, I think, on the same page. It's a lesson to be learnt, I think, for those within our own Christian tradition, or indeed for others within our faith traditions, who feel that God can be proved, that God can be argued for, and that that involves a downgrading or a judgment upon other people's views. I think that's a that's actually what human dialogue and good human dialogue involves is is a non-judgmental openness to difference and bearing witness to that good place to end as any david wilkinson thank you so much for your time thank you dan thank you to laura kondaragian for editing my conversation with david and uh yeah Check the show notes for any information for the Patreon link if you'd like that. And I'll see you guys next week with another episode. Be well, stay safe, stay home, stay healthy, stay home if you can. If you're an essential worker, uh, God bless you. Thank you for your work. All right. See you guys next week.